Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. The Chinese Communist Party used the 20th Party Congress meeting, which was recently held in Beijing, to give Xi Jinping an unprecedented third term in power. What will he do with it? As the General Secretary of the party, he has the capacity to take decisive action on many issues, especially as he has surrounded himself with loyalists on the Standing Committee of the Politburo. We know that security is one of his key concerns. He also wants to push China to become more self-reliant in areas such as food, energy and technology. But what about the economy and foreign policy? And how about great power rivalry between China and the United States? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast someone who's extremely well-placed to analyse Xi Jinping and China. My guest is Howard Zhang, editor of the BBC's Chinese service. Howard, thanks for joining us again on China in Context. Hi, Duncan. Let's start with the issue of security. Xi Jinping spoke about that extensively at the 20th Party Congress in October. What's on his mind? In a nutshell, we can look at uh, all the text in detail, but in layman's terms, he's stressing loyalty to the current system, to the one leader, one party system. And he's stressing on the um, security of the one party rule, as well as wider national security, economic uh, and military uh, in terms. Uh, Then he also put some emphasis on the urgency of reunification with Taiwan. Ah, Taiwan. Well, I'm sure you know that the question that's most often put to journalists when it comes to Xi Jinping's continuation in office is, is he now going to order China to invade Taiwan? How do you go about answering that question when it's raised, for example, in the BBC newsroom? For the past seven some decades, the Chinese Communist Party have always maintained uh, their intention to take Taiwan eventually, either peacefully or by forces if necessary. Uh, during uh, one of my interviews with the Taiwanese uh, uh, officials, the foreign minister of Taiwan noticed that the word must has been added in to Xi Jinping's speech during the Congress. So before there was always an insistence on the eventual reunification, but this time there's a word must. So that is new, but what does this must mean? It does not really you know, give people the sense of immediacy, but the determination is emphasized here. Also, the long-term intentions not shifted. It's always been maintained. I guess that's the, the, the thing we can get out of this, this Congress. That's right. Well, the, this Congress speeches also um, shaped China's constitution. And somebody said to me the significant point is that the constitution now contains official opposition to Taiwan's independence. It's not the Chinese constitution, it's the Chinese Communist Party's constitution. So, but it can be argued it's the same thing, but uh, for the Communist Party to enshrine the eventual takeover of Taiwan into the constitution has made it an official priority. And uh, if you look from Xi Jinping's perspective, this in, in some ways is him setting an agenda for the party for the next five to 10 years. You can argue that. At the moment, China's refusing to budge on its tacit support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
although it doesn't seem to be supplying Putin with any weapons or military backing. How do you see China's relationship with Russia developing over the next five years? Actually, that's directly connected to the previous question we were talking about. If China start to see its relation with the West, eventually there will be a conflict of some sort and to reset the world order, it will almost have to strategically align itself with Russia. If China, for example, attacks Taiwan, US and its allies most likely would do some type of sanction and blockade of the sea lanes. Hence, for China to maintain its war effort and to eventually have some type of winning chance with the West, it has to maintain energy, food, and other supplies. And the only possible way is through land, through Russia and Central Asia. And uh, hence, if China is preparing for a conflict with the US in the open seas, then it's visible, if you look at the map, why they have to be allies with the Russians. So in one of his speeches at the Congress, Xi Jinping referred to a grim and complex international situation. That led me to think that he might be referring to China's international standing um, or its relationship with other countries. What do you think he's referring to? In his assessment, he's also said many times he reckons the world has come into an age where a, a great reset is happening. And once in a century uh, window where powers are shifting and their assessment based on what the communists call a dialectic uh, materialism, meaning hard-nosed calculation, power calculation, they feel China possibly combined with Russia are on the winning side or eventually have a better chance of winning than what they perceive as a completely bankrupt Western democracies. They feel the world is going through a reset and they have a better chance of getting to a better place uh, in, in the new world order by ganging up and take on the current order setter, which is US and, and Europe. China's tech companies are about to face a very serious problem. The United States is trying to stop them obtaining semiconductors and other high-tech equipment from abroad. Um, the US cites security concerns. Basically, it's worried that this gear is going to be used to manufacture lethal weapons or surveillance equipment, which could allow authoritarian states to control their citizens. It's been described as the chip choke. I quite like that headline. How's China responding to this so-called chip choke? Not very well if you just look at the, the current state of the Chinese industries and uh, lots of uh, senior engineers and executives who hold foreign passports are leaving and uh, investments are leaving the industry. The Chinese can only hold on to some of the lower end of the chip industry. And uh, the long-term implications of this, uh, we'll have to wait and see, but some do describe this as a, uh, you know, what they call the Achilles heel of the Chinese uh, power. But China do have other potential hitbacks, such as limiting the export of rare earth, which enables lots of the high-tech things to be made, uh, as well as, uh, you know, many countries from US to UK have pointed out they're using espionage, trying to uh, take technology, steal technology from here, 
and also they could limit the sales of uh, Western goods in China as they're using the market as a uh, leverage. So all these are possibilities, but in the long run, it does not really look good in this crucial sector. I was talking to some um, experts of Taiwanese uh, semiconductor industry in Taipei in the past few weeks, and uh, some of them are saying you can only become successful in the semiconductor industry if you're open to the world, because it's a highly complex industry and different components, different machinery, different expertise are dotted all, all across the Western world. If you're not in an open relationship with everybody, you cannot be ultimately successful in this game. And uh, if that's the case, then China is facing lots of difficulties in front, whatever they do. There's another crisis in China relating to the property market. Sales of new homes were down 30% in the first half of 2022 compared to last year. Does Xi Jinping have any plans to deal with the problems in the property sector? Uh, because they're also in danger of causing a lot of trouble with the banks and throughout the economy, aren't they? I guess we can get some clues. We don't have any official policies yet, but we can get some clues of some of uh, the methods they use to deal with previous sort of a housing bubble, smaller bubbles in different areas. Everyone knows China's got way more property per capita than the actual demand can be there. And most people used properties as a place to park their cash and to, to speculate because for a long time during the boom years, property is one of the quicker ways of making money for both officials and, and normal citizens alike. And uh, during one of the burst bubbles in northern China, in the mining areas, what they did was essentially freeze the market because it's a one-party country and uh, the party also controls all the banks and uh, all the property development eventually. So what they did was order a stop to all the development, a stop of the sales, and also stop the banks from claiming back any mortgages. So they can just order a freeze, indefinite freeze, to make sure there's no collapse. And uh, then the state could use methods such as mandatory requirement of you, uh, the owner of the property, to let it out to lower and low-income populations for next to nothing. So you have somebody living in it, but you know there's essentially no trade. They do not really apply any, they, they can afford not to apply market economy. And uh, if you look at the current lockdowns and uh, zero COVID, they can just use the planned economy and the martial law, or eventually they can decouple from uh, market forces. I want to know more about Xi Jinping's new second in command, Li Chang from Shanghai. Shanghai has been subjected to some draconian lockdowns as a result of Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy. And when I speak to people from Shanghai on this podcast, I pick up the impression that there's quite a bit of resentment actually towards China's national leaders. What do you think Li Chang's role will be in implementing Xi Jinping's policies during his third term? I did actually talk to quite a few people, both in in the industry side, as well as on city kind of management side of most of them, I totally agree, hold strong resentment of his policies and many think unnecessary policies in Shanghai to lock down 20 some people, million people for so long. 
but many also point to me. You have to understand the logic, why he did it. Because if you understand your ultimate boss, which is Xi Jinping, demands absolute loyalty. So when he said he wants you to lock down, you should just do it. And he displayed 100% loyalty to Xi Jinping at the cost of millions of people's living standards and you know, sometimes even livelihood and health and everything else. So he showed his ruthless side to the people, but he also displayed absolute loyalty to his boss. Hence, even his promotion to the prime minister was surprising to many China insiders. They were shocked to see somebody without previously served even in the central government at any level to now be granted the uh, number two position in the country. And many see that as a reward for his absolute adherence to Xi Jinping's orders. That's what I gather, you know, and, and whether there's more reason for his promotion, I don't know. But for most experts I talk to, that's the, the main thing is for his loyalty. Well, thank you, Howard. You've touched on many subjects, which I hope we'll be able to return to again on the podcast. That was Howard Zhang, editor of the BBC's Chinese service. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research on the website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.